0: Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege it is to come before you together and to lift up your name and to praise the name of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that he is the king. And the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of all. He is the king of all creation. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we will read about things that our culture today finds incredibly offensive Lord and we can be tempted to blunt uh, the force of what your word is saying to us but Lord you are the king no one else is the king and the kingdom is your kingdom and being your kingdom you alone decide who enters your kingdom and who does not and Lord your word proclaims to us that we are sinners Lord, there was a time before Christ when we were all of us enslaved to sin. We were excluded from your kingdom. But by your great mercy, you sent your son to redeem us, to purchase our redemption. And going back to heaven, he poured out his Holy Spirit. And your Holy Spirit caused us to be born again, made citizens of of your kingdom, purely by your mercy. Lord, none of us have done anything to earn becoming a citizen of your kingdom. It's only by the grace that you have lavished upon us through the person of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so help us, Lord, to come this morning humbly before your word. Um, Let us have soft hearts as your word warns us, but also, Lord, help us to have responsive hearts as your word encourages us at the very same time. Lord, uh, bless our time together as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 this morning. We read it in our call to worship. I will go ahead and read those three verses for us again. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and starting in verse 9, Paul writes... Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. When a person from another country comes to the United States in order to become a citizen here, there is an oath of allegiance that each one of those prospective citizens are required to take before they can become a true citizen of this country. And here is this oath that they must take, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform noncombatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion so help me god that's the oath that they take when you and i repent of our sins and we place our faith in the lord jesus christ you and i become a new citizen of the kingdom of god philippians 3:20 says that our citizenship is in heaven colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And when we became a citizen of God's kingdom, we make very similar commitments to God that we find um, immigrants to this country committing um, when they become a citizen of this country. But our commitments to God should be far more solemn. That oath I read was very solemn, wouldn't you agree? But when we become citizens of the kingdom of God, that is a far more solemn, far more weighty commitment because it is an infinitely greater thing to become a citizen of the kingdom of God than it is to become a citizen of this country. When we become a citizen of God's kingdom, even as that oath said, we ourselves absolutely and entirely renounce all allegiance to the evil one, to his kingdom and to our old lives as unbelievers. We declare when we become a believer that we will support and defend the word of God against all enemies, and that we will bear true faith to that word of God and allegiance to it. We declare to do all that God would require of us as he has revealed it in his word, and we take that obligation upon ourselves freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. The Corinthians that Paul is writing this letter to, they were new citizens of God's kingdom. They had made those binding commitments, but there was a problem. They were starting to fall back into obeying the laws of Satan's kingdom, the kingdom that they had renounced, the kingdom that they had severed all ties to. They were beginning to obey his laws rather than the laws of the one whose kingdom they were now new citizens of. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8, we saw how Paul has been calling these believers to account for their willingness to behave unrighteously, to behave as citizens of the kingdom of darkness. Paul says that they have been wronging and defrauding one another. He says that in verse 8. They have been doing that by taking one another to court instead of reconciling together and helping one another to reconcile together. So Paul is intensely concerned about the path that these believers are walking down. So he seeks to warn them, and then he seeks to encourage them, so that they might get back to acting like citizens of God's kingdom. This passage is not only for them 2,000 years ago, this passage is for us today as well. Paul's severe warning and his strong encouragement will enable us, if we are truly believers... It will enable us to truly live as citizens of God's kingdom. It will point out to us what that needs to look like in our lives. And if anyone here is not a believer, this passage will be a plea to you to become a citizen of God's kingdom. So let's first look at Paul's severe warning. We see this in verses 9 through 10. Paul again, at the beginning of verse 9 he asks that question, that humbling question, that pricking question that he's been asking, do you not know? Verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That is a basic fact about the kingdom of God. The Corinthians are acting like they have forgotten this reality when it comes to the kingdom of God. And there are two indications that they seem to have forgotten this basic foundational reality about the kingdom of God. The first indication is what we find in verse 1, that they have been going before unrighteous judges. They have been taking kingdom concerns and bringing those concerns before judges who are not at all concerned about the kingdom. If they understood that they were citizens of the kingdom of God, they would not be bringing these matters before those who are not a part of God's kingdom. That's the first indication that they seem to have forgotten that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The second indication we find in verse 8, where Paul says that they are wronging others. That is, they are behaving unjustly, unrighteously. And that Greek word for, for wronging someone, it, the root of it is the same as the word for unrighteous back in verse 1. They are behaving unrighteously. As if they too are not a part of the kingdom of God. And so Paul is compelled to ask them, Do you not know that, you, that the unrighteous, rather, will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he issues a command to them after asking them that sobering question, he says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. He doesn't want them to be mistaken about this. And this is where we here now need to sit up and take notice. Because this is something that even today we can so easily be deceived and deceive ourselves about. The word for deceive there. It means according to one lexicon to proceed without a proper sense of direction. Proceed without a proper sense of direction. Paul does not want these believers to think that they are traveling toward the kingdom of God when in fact they are traveling toward the kingdom of the devil. He doesn't, think, he doesn't want them to think they're going one way when really they're walking in another direction entirely. Paul is warning them that they are currently walking in such a way that indicates that they are actually not headed where they think they're headed. So to help them change course, to turn around and get back on the road that leads to the kingdom of God, Paul gets very specific with them. He makes a list for them. Now this list that we read in these two verses, 9 and 10, is not all-encompassing. Paul could have made this list a lot longer. Any sin you find in the Scriptures, Paul could have plugged into that list. But he, he may have just limited to that because these might be the particular sins that the Corinthians were struggling with, that they were falling back into. So he puts these items in that list. But really, any sin could be added there. Paul is going to show them in verses 9 and 10 what kind of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's going to show them that those who practice these kinds of lifestyles will not inherit the kingdom of God because, as we read in 1 John 3, those who practice those kinds of lifestyles are really still citizens of the kingdom of darkness and this is a very helpful passage to us because it lets us know that if our lives are characterized by unrighteous behavior that is if we are pursuing sin as a habit as a manner of course instead of pursuing Jesus Christ this passage helps us identify that about ourselves so that we can realize we are headed for hell we are acting as a citizen of the kingdom of Satan and we can wake up and repent, and run to Christ for salvation. Now to be clear, all true believers will stumble into things in this list. True believers will wrestle with these very things from time to time, and maybe even frequently. But the true believer, there's a difference between someone in the kingdom of God and someone in the kingdom of Satan. The the person who is a citizen of the kingdom of God will keep repenting. When he stumbles into that sin, even if it's day after day, the Lord will convict him. He will come before God and confess his sin and plead with the Lord, help me to turn from this sin. And he will make use of the means that the Lord has given to help him turn from this sin. But the citizen of the kingdom of Satan does not repent of these things. He pursues these things. He may give lip service to the fact that, oh, I know I shouldn't live this way, but in reality, he is still pursuing these things. That's the difference. And Paul, here in this passage, is describing those who pursue these sins. Those individuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. So let's look at this List, item by item here. Paul begins, he says, Fornicators, that is, sexually immoral, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That refers to those who will not repent from pursuing any kind of sexual activity that is outside the bonds of marriage. We read about such a man in chapter 5, the man who had his father's wife, a sexually immoral man. Paul says that, in verse 9, idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. An idolater is someone who worships someone or something other than the one true God. And an idol does not have to be a block of wood that you sit up in the corner of your living room and and bow down to. An idol can be matters of the heart as well. In fact, if you want to write this reference down, Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul there instructs believers to put to death the members of your earthly body, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Paul says there that greed, just a matter of the heart, an attitude of the heart, greed is a form of idolatry. So an idol can be anything that you choose over God. Anything that you're willing to sin against God in order to lay your hands on. It can be anything that if you cannot get your hands on it, results in you harboring an attitude of discontentment. That's an idol. And Paul says, if you are pursuing idols, if you don't repent, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Going on in the list, Paul says that adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Adultery is the pursuit of a sexual relationship with anyone or anything other than your spouse. Jesus said in Matthew 5.28 that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So even if you don't pursue the physical act, if you are unrepentantly pursuing someone other than your spouse in your heart, lusting for him or her and hanging on to that lust, nurturing that evil desire without turning away from it, if you persist in enslaving yourself to that sin, Paul says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul goes on to say the effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of God. Some of your translations combines effeminate and homosexual into uh, just one sin and translated various ways. But the text actually breaks it up into two different items. That first item is the effeminate. The Greek word there means soft. And Paul is not talking about personality here. He's not saying that unless you're a macho man, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not talking about personality. This word, when it's used in this kind of context, refers to an individual who plays the role of a woman in a same-sex relationship. It's a man acting like a woman in a sexual relationship with another man. That's all I will say about that. I won't go into any more detail. One lexicon says this pertains to being passive in a same-sex relationship. And in our society today, this this effeminateness, this, this sexual passivity on the behalf of men is taken to the extreme when a biological man actually seeks to physically change his gender identity into that of a woman. Paul says such a person if they don't repent, will inherit the kingdom of God. He says in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, that homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. That same lexicon defines this word as a male who engages in a sexual activity with a person of his own sex. It goes on to say that this word speaks of one who assumes the dominant role in same-sex activity. It's the complement of the previous word we looked at. It refers to a man who takes on the role of a man in that sexual relationship with another man. Now, for the sake of being clear, these two sinful lifestyles are not restricted to men. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, says, "...for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions." For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So women likewise can engage in these sinful lifestyles. Either a woman taking on the role of a woman in her relationship with another woman or a woman taking on the role of a man in her relationship with another woman. And again, we find biological women in our society today carrying that to the extreme of actually trying to turn themselves into a man. Paul says, such an unrepentant person will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul continues his list in verse 10. He goes on to say that thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God, those who secretly pilfer or steal from others. And just in case we think that it's only the physical carrying out of these activities that we need to steer clear of, the next item in verse 10 says that the covetous, the greedy, will not inherit the kingdom of God. We need to repent not only of our outward sins, but of the sins that occur out of everybody else's sight in our own hearts. It's wrong to be greedy. It's wrong to desire more than what God wills for you to have. We see that in the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife his male servant or his female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Exodus 20 verse 17. Paul says that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who pursue a substance, whether it's alcoholic or otherwise, to try and fill a gap that only God can fill. Those who willingly give up their wits give up their self-control for the sake of pursuing the pleasure or the relief that a substance may, for a little while, provide them. As with all these other sins, it's just another form of idolatry. Paul says revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who like to insult and mock and tear down and abuse others by their words whether those words are spoken to the person's face or spoken behind their back. And those words can be verbal, they can be written in a letter or an email, or they can just be thought by you about that person. Unrepentant revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And finally, the last item in Paul's list is swindlers. Swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who use any means necessary at the expense of others to gain more for themselves, for their own pleasure and their own use? Do we find ourselves in that list anywhere? Are we unrepentantly pursuing any of these things, or maybe other things, other sins that the Bible talks about that could also be included in this list? Are we pursuing these things instead of pursuing Christ? If so, we've been warned by these verses that we are not heading in the direction we may think we're heading in. We may still be citizens of the devil's kingdom rather than God's. And if we don't repent, when we die, we won't wake up in heaven. We'll wake up in hell. This is a sober warning for us, but thankfully Paul does not leave the Corinthians there And he does not leave us there. Brings us to the strong encouragement. And this encouragement is every bit as strong, if not stronger, than the warning he has given. We find this strong encouragement in verse 11. Paul says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, explaining the, in, in explaining this verse, I'm going to kind of take a roundabout way to get there, so keep tracking with me. In today's society, there are certain justifications that people often give in order to try and excuse their sin. Many today will say, I was born this way. I can't help whom I'm attracted to. So don't you dare judge me Don't you dare tell me that God will judge me and will not accept me because of who I was born to be. I can't help that. That's often said regarding the sexual sins in Paul's list. Or many will say, this is not a sin. This is a disease. This is a disorder. God cannot hold me accountable for what I can't help. I didn't make myself get sick like this so don't judge me. It's not my fault. I'm prone to steal things or to get drunk or to lash out at people or to be discontented. I have a sickness. That's often said regarding the sins in the second half of Paul's list. And to a certain degree, those who say such things are right, but not in the way they might think. It is true that we were born that way. We were all born what? Sinners. King David said in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That's true of every single son and daughter of Adam, except for the virgin-born one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our forefather ate the forbidden fruit and plunged the whole human race into sin. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. When Adam sinned, in that one moment, he automatically made every one of his sons and daughters after him natural-born citizens of the kingdom of darkness. That is the kingdom into which we are born every one of us and that truth is borne out before our eyes every single day. I was born a sinner. My sons were born sinners. Their sons and daughters will be born sinners. And being born in sin, each one of us has expressed our sinfulness in a variety of ways. Whether it's sexual immorality or homosexuality or drunkenness or covetous or swindling, you name it. We were born that way. But that is not an excuse that we can wave before God and expect him on the basis of that excuse to open up the doors to his kingdom and just welcome us in. The fact that we were born that way is actually an indictment against us. It's not an excuse. It's an indictment against us. Saying I was born this way is to admit that I am evil through and through. It's not just that I learned to do this. I am this. I didn't just learn to do evil. I am evil. And being evil, I was born an enemy of God. That's why when the Pharisee Nicodemus came to talk with Jesus, Jesus said to him in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, that should lead you and I to say, well then, I need to be born again because I am unrighteous apart from God saving me, transforming me. There is no way I will be able to inherit the kingdom of God unless God does something miraculous in my life. And that is what brings us to verse 11. Paul is reminding these believers that they have been born again. God has done that incredible transformative work in their lives. They are not who they used to be. That's why Paul says in the past tense, such were some of you. Paul is writing to people who were formerly enslaved to fornication, to idolatry, to adultery, to homosexuality and their own form of transgenderism, to stealing and swindling, drunkenness and reviling and greed. But, Paul says, he says three buts. But you were washed. They had been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ that He shed on the cross for them to pay for their sins. They were now white as snow in God's eyes. The filth of their sin had been completely washed away, the guilt taken from off of their shoulders. But you were washed, He says. Secondly, Paul says, But you were sanctified. These people had formerly been held captive by the devil to do his will. But now God had set them free. He had set them apart from their sin, apart from their old master, the devil, apart from their old lives, and he had consecrated them to his service. And then thirdly, Paul says, but you were justified. These Corinthians had formerly been unrighteous outside of the kingdom of God, headed for hell, but God had justified them. God had declared them righteous and fit to inherit his kingdom. Something miraculous had happened to these Corinthians. They had been born all over again. They had been transformed and made into new creatures. And just as Adam had made them natural-born citizens of the kingdom of the devil, Jesus had made them supernatural-born citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't mean that they never again had to wrestle with sin. Otherwise, Paul would not have written 1 Corinthians. But it did mean they were not slaves to sin anymore. They could say no to sin. And they could say yes to following Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying to them, because you have been transformed, stop going down this path of sin and get back onto the path of following Jesus Christ because that is the path that washed, sanctified, and justified individuals walk on. Stop acting like citizens of Satan's kingdom and start acting like what you actually are citizens of God's kingdom. Now we have to apply this to ourselves. What about you and me this morning? Have you and I been transformed, saved, but we've stumbled into a pattern of sin that we are currently not repenting of? To you this passage is a a warning, a severe warning, but it's also An incredibly strong encouragement to you. You have left the straight and narrow path and you have wandered onto that broad path that leads to destruction. Repent. Turn back. By faith start following Jesus Christ again. You are a new creature and God has given you everything you need to stay on that straight and narrow path that leads to life. God's grace has made you a citizen of God's kingdom. And Paul says to you in this passage, start acting like it. Or are you instead someone who has never been washed? You've never been sanctified. You've never been justified. All your life, you have been a slave to sin, and that is what you are right now. Maybe you're enslaved to sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery homosexuality or transgenderism stealing coveting drunkenness and drugs reviling or some other sin and you might feel so trapped that you cannot for the life of you see how anyone could possibly break your bonds and set you free well remember paul wrote this letter to people who were in bondage to the very same sins that you are struggling with and god set them free And he's just as powerful today as he was then. He can set you free. He can transform you. How, you asked. The same way the Corinthians were. Verse 11 again. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You cannot save yourself. You cannot wash yourself from your sins. You cannot break free from your enslavement to sin and set yourself apart to the service of God. You cannot justify yourself. You cannot make yourself right in the eyes of God. But there is someone who has the authority to do that for you. And that is Jesus Christ. God sent his son, Jesus Christ to live a perfect life in the place of sinners like you. He sent his son to die on the cross, paying the death sentence penalty for sinners like you. And Jesus rose from the dead to justify sinners like you. And as such, Jesus alone has the authority to save you and to forgive you and to grant you new life, eternal life. So this passage is a plea to you, if, if you are not a believer today, a plea to you to turn from your sins and to turn to Jesus in faith. Call on his name for salvation and for mercy, and you will find that he will save you because he is faithful. If you sincerely turn to Jesus Christ, it will only be because of the power of the Holy Spirit that has given you new eyes to see. That is why Paul says at the very end of verse 11, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God, only the Holy Spirit can make us born again. Only the Holy Spirit can give us a new heart that repents and believes and new eyes to see. And so if you desire to turn from your sins, be encouraged because that is the Holy Spirit making you alive and turn to Christ and he will save you. Jesus promised In John 6 verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. If you come to Jesus by believing in his name, he will not reject you. He will welcome you with open arms, and he will make you a citizen of his kingdom. Let's pray.